It is good to be here though and it is good to uh, keep, keep going in this book of, of Galatians. Um, here's something I've realised about Galatians as we've been tracking through it was that my outline was ambitious. Um, kind of thought we could get through it in, in seven weeks and, and um, I just think that that's sort of not doing... Well, I've come to realise that's not really doing the book any justice. So, so today I kind of had to rest at a point. Uh, we won't do the whole passage, kind of stopped at a point. But here's what I'm comforted in is that most of you are in small groups and, and that you can get to the material uh, that we don't cover here on a Sunday. You've got the opportunity to go and get to it because there's some really great stuff in there to have a look at. But let's pray and, um, and we'll get into what we can this morning. Loving God, our prayer right now is that um, you would convict us in truth, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts to your grace uh, in ways that, that shape us and transform us for your glory and ultimately our joy. Uh, lead our hearts and our minds to truth that, that shapes our lives as we read from your word this morning. Another thing that, um, that I've contemplated this week is whenever you're trying to think of some nifty uh, way to get into a message, we were talking about this at Bible study last week, other than let's just, let's just open the book and get to work, you know, preachers like to have some nifty little hook uh, that, that invites you in to listen. You kind of always wonder, uh, is the idea or the illustration uh, that you've come up with going to resonate? Is that actually going to do the job that, that you hope it does? Uh, if it's a cultural reference, you kind of wonder, I wonder if people were even born uh, when this you know, pop cultural reference happens. So I thought I'd take a poll here this morning. We've had a lot of interactive stuff in this uh, this series, haven't we? Who was born after, not before, but after 1993? We've got some demograph problems. In... You'll do, Beck. You're you making me feel better. But you're not going to get this reference, okay? <laughs> That's right. This reference is going to work, but there's a group of people we need to target. So uh, this, this week, as I was running through the sermon and looking at, and looking at uh, this chapter 3 again, I, a thought kept coming into my mind. And that thought was, Galatians is like Groundhog Day. Not necessarily the festival. Yeah, see, you cultural reference. I don't, I don't even need to explain it, do I? You got it. It's not like the festival that takes place on the 2nd of March in Canada and the, in America in spots where they... Where, what is that? It's Punxsutawney Phil. He's a little groundhog and he comes out of the ground and if he sees his shadow, he goes, oh, winter's still going to come, I'm running back down my hole, which makes no sense to me because if he doesn't see his shadow, he thinks, oh, summer's on the way. But to me, like the sun's out, you see your shadow, summer's doesn't matter. <laughs> Canadians, what can you do with them? But in the sense of... Groundhog Day, that, that, that classic Bill Murray film, uh, you know, where he's the reporter, happens to be called Phil as well, and he goes up to that place in Pennsylvania, Punxsutawney. Is that how you say it? I'm not going to try it again, Nick. And he want, he's got a report on this stupid little groundhog that comes out of the ground. He hates it. He can't wait to get out of the joint. But something happens in there, and he has to relive, relive the same day again and again. And Groundhog Day, so the phrase came out of that movie. 
Groundhog Day, it's a classic. Every other, you know, every other movie that came after that is just a cheap imitation of Bill Murray's Groundhog Day. You know those movies, oh, Live the Same Day Again? Not even close to that, but that's not really relevant to what this sermon's about. What is relevant is that Galatians feels like Groundhog Day. That over and over again, it feels like Paul's just saying the same thing to us. And for five weeks in, we could be starting to tire of it. We'd be like, oh, how many, how many ways do you want to tell us that we're not saved by what we do, but what Jesus has done? That we're justified not by who we are, but by who we know. That salvation, our, our faith is by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, over and over And over again, Galatians goes like Groundhog Day. Um, Shea Sumlin uh, preached a great message on Galatians 3, uh, 10 to 14. And he points out in his message, he says, this repetition is good. This repetition is good for us. We need it. It helps us not to forget what's key, what's central. We need to be reminded of the gospel And that's something that we've all agreed on as we've gone through this series. Indeed, Paul himself, when he writes to the Philippian church, in chapter 3 he writes to them, he says, to write the same things again to you is no trouble to me because I recognise that it's a safeguard for your soul. To go over these things again and again is a, is a safeguard for our souls. And Peter, who has been at the centre of this rebuke in chapter 2, he then goes on to write in 2 Peter, I enjoy reminding you of, the, of these things, the, the gospel, these things. He's already covered them in the first chapter. Even though you already know them. Why? We need to go over and over them again. Repetitiveness is good for us. We shouldn't tire of it. It washes over us and it reminds us that it is the grace of God at work to save us through faith in Jesus because we are good at forgetting that. And God loves us enough to tell us again and again and again in this little book of Galatians that faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved, to come into a right relationship with God. That Jesus plus nothing is everything, as the little phrase has been coined. So now up until this point, up until chapter 3, which we're kicking into today, Paul has been arguing uh, for his orthodoxy, for the, for the truthfulness ortho, the straightness, that's where orthopedic surgeon, you know, ortho, the straightness of his gospel that he preached to them You know, that justification, you you being made right with God, uh, is in faith in Jesus alone. And his argumentation uh, thus far has been based in his story uh, and and Peter's story, how they both received uh, the gospel, that it was from the risen Lord Jesus, they got it personally for him, and how that same gospel that they then went out and preached uh, and believed had the same effects, led people to the Lord, had the same uh, manifestation of the Spirit in people's lives. And Paul has been looking at that and saying, we both had the same, same experience, same gospel. It was evidenced in their ministries uh, by the same fellowship and work of the Holy Spirit. And he's been talking about their encounter and their experience up to this point. Now Paul, in the letter, turns to the Christians in Galatia And with the same pastoral concern and and corrective love, which is another word for a rebuke, uh, that he engaged with Peter, he now addresses 
the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Nice way to start your address, isn't it? Who, and it's strong. It's like, you idiots. Who has bewitched you? Who has come along and stopped you, derailed you, distracted you from the truth? Who, who has come along and told you that you're not complete, that you need more, there's something more to do? Why now are you thinking you must live by another message? Given all that you've suffered and experienced, did all that mean nothing? Was all that irrelevant? Did it really not happen? Could you really be that foolish to set aside all that you've come to know and experience? Oh, foolish Galatians. Behind this emotional rebuke of Paul towards the Galatians is the news that Paul has received or the the things that he sees now that he's back in Galatia that they are turning to a different gospel. We read that in Galatians 1.6 because there's teachers moving amongst the Galatian churches pushing a, a troubling message. It's causing trouble within the churches. Unrest if you like. A troubling claim that, sure, sure, you can believe in Jesus. That's great, that's great you believe in Jesus. But the way you complete that belief, the way you attain its promise, a promise that's as old as Abraham, a promise that God gave to Abraham, which is you know, followed up later in this chapter, is to follow the same practices, some of which began with Abraham, the great father of God's people, you know. You complete it by following these practices. Sounds good. Sounds right. It's got, got some kind of traction there. Your righteousness is completed by adhering to some of these covenantal signs, these rites, these practices, like circumcision. What, what an Abraham circumcised? Poor guy. Or things like baptism or some kind of initiation and penitence. There's, there's processes and things to do, things to add. And if you don't do them, you haven't completed this transaction. There are things to do to show you're advancing. There are things to do as you go along in your faith to complete it, to to help out with your acceptability to God. It's totally the opposite of the gospel that saved you. It's totally the opposite of the gospel you heard that said it's all done for you in Jesus and and now organize your life around being accepted and not trying to continue to gain acceptance and it's caused trouble, trouble within the ranks. And here's what I think, or here's what I think the Apostle Paul calls these Galatians uh, that drift, drift towards this way, he calls it foolishness. It's, it's, it's crazy because, well, we look at this word here that begins it, he says, uh, we have this word bewitched which carries a sense of uh, an externally uh, motivated fascination. Something external to what you have has come along and and, and, and cast a spell over you, if you like, or bewitched you and, 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 and got you fascinated in some other thing. You are enticed by it. And, and you're enticed by it because you think it's a solution to an emerging problem or question that arised in every single church where the gospel was preached. And that question that the Galatians are trying to grapple with, and it's a question that every single church, every single Christian will ever grapple with, is how does a Christian move from 
are imputed righteousness, that is righteousness that is credited to them, uh, are given to them, imputed, it was given to you, to imparted righteousness. That is a way of life that enjoys being improved. Okay, imputed righteousness was the righteousness that God gave you in Christ. We talked about it, justification, moment, event, it happened. Okay, great, now how do I live? What flows out of that? that so a life of imparted righteousness is a life that's lived doing the right thing. Make sense? How does that happen? How does one go from being accepted to living as accepted? How do we move forward as Christians? What does Christian living look like that God actually blesses? And here's the thing. Because as accepted as we were in that moment, that moment of justification, we knew we were accepted. Wonderful as that moment of justification was, time moving forward, here's what we realise. I still struggle. I'm not perfect. I still get angry at insignificant matters. Like... Angus Bryant puts on a dodgy screen on, on Chris Golding on, on Friday night and all of a sudden I'm on a plane and I'm going to burn his house to the ground. He's probably a nice guy. Why am I getting angry? I find myself seeking satisfactions and contentment in experiences and possessions like a, a full drive perhaps to live out a life I have no time for. Eh? Confessions of a pastor this morning. Just making you feel comfortable. Or I still feel that I'm not good enough, so I do stuff to feel more approved. I still fail to live out the law. I still fail to live out the Ten Commandments, so then should I still use the safety measures in the law to work off my failures, to work off my sinfulness? Like, How do I take justification and turn it into a life? Like, What do I do here? What is the means by which I live as a Christian? And so these Judaizers will say, well, you're the law, you know, you just got to add it in. That'll, that'll help you. Well, in this passage, Paul begins with an argument of experience. And then he will move on to arguments of history. He'll move on to Abraham to say that the Christian life is a life of faith in Jesus and it's held in place by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, not your continued efforts to redouble down, not your continued efforts to, 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 to do stuff yourself. Now listen, that's not a get-out-of-jail card. Like the Holy Spirit just magically fixes things and we, and we move through without any impact. Oh, you know, he's just doing this stuff for us. No, it's quite the opposite. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and directs us to holiness. It tears down our self-sufficiency. And at times, that is a painful experience on our pride, on what we do naturally, self-sufficiency. But it always leads to our joy and it's always safe. But to a degree, isn't the law easier? Like, Isn't it easier just to tick a box and do something? than have our hearts and our souls investigated toward our motives. Paul says the way you become a Christian, or the way you advance as a Christian, is the same means by which you became a Christian. 
the very same means by which you which you are so the same way you become a Christian is the same way you're sustained as a Christian. Supernatural work. It's out of foolishness, it's just mindlessness, inconsistency, contradictions then to return to uh, works of the flesh, human effort, and practice as the means by which you are approved when your when your approval came by grace, by God. And is held in place then by the Holy Spirit. It's evidenced. You, you, you had the gospel spoken to you. It was outlined to you. And the evidence that you perceived it, that you understood it, that it grabbed hold of your heart was that you were now under a new motivation. Supernatural rebirth. That's what John and Jesus, John, Jesus is talking about in John 3. How do we be born again? Well, it's very hard to describe, but let me tell you. Uh, you've heard me talk about it a lot. We won't linger there. You became a Christian by hearing about and resting in Jesus. And that resulted in the Holy Spirit, a birthing faith in your heart. So don't be foolish. Don't be so foolish as to be so easily persuaded that you've got it from here, that you can take over, that you can do stuff. It's now up to you. It's not. Forgetting how you became a Christian fosters a very foolish faith, which indeed is no faith at all. And here's what it does. It allows us, if we, if we roll in that lane, it allows us to invite or set up other functional saviours to replace Jesus to get our sense of approval out of, our sense of acceptance out of, our sense of meaning out of. That's how dumb you're being, O foolish Galatians. Yeah, that's right. If you operate like this, Paul says, you are being dumb. He says, it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. Now, it is very unlikely that any Galatian actually saw Jesus on the cross. They wouldn't have been there. So why is Paul saying this? Before your very eyes, you saw Jesus being portrayed as crucified. Well, the Bible writers like Paul use sensory language to describe a movement of intellectual knowledge to deep heart belief, to transformation. To see with your eyes is to experience and perceive in your heart knowledge that becomes like an over, I love this phrase, overmastering reality. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened to see with your eyes. When Paul came to Galatia, he preached to them the news about Jesus, that he died for their sins, that in Jesus we are made right with God. Paul said nothing else. That's what his message was. We understand that because when we read 1 Corinthians 2.2, that's what Paul says. I just preached the testimony of God, what God had to say, that in Jesus' work, not your works, you're made right with God. It was publicly portrayed. Uh, It was before your eyes in Paul's preaching, like placards, like big banners up in the sky. It's kind of like when the next uh, instalment of a Marvel movie comes out. 
and uh, it's everywhere. It's on your TVs, on your Facebook, YouTube, billboards, and you're driving down an European highway, uh, and again and again you keep hearing about this movie until your heart says, you need to go and see that movie. And oh boy, what a wonderful movie it is. Again and again, Christ, 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 until your heart says, oh boy, oh boy, I need to see that movie. Paul preached Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, placarding it up, holding it up, and it alone, until the illumination of the Spirit in their hearts, and they were deeply gripped by the reality of what Jesus had done for them. It's a supernatural work. You didn't do it. You came in to Christianity by it this way. Why would you try something else? Now you're in there. And information became an experience before their eyes that entered their hearts and they received the Spirit. Ephesians 1 acts as a bit of a commentary on what Paul's talking about here. Uh, saying, uh, in Jesus... Uh, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the promise, to the praise of his glory. This is the transaction that Paul's talking about. This is the experience that the Galatians have had. Was it in vain? When you heard and believed the truth, God gifted you the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to regenerate your dead heart into faith. So faith becomes the evidence and of the presence of, the Spirit, of God's Spirit. It's the ultimate um, proof of your approval. Now, was that by works of the law? Did they get to a certain uh, level of attainment? Did they get to a certain thing and, and level up? Like Lockie's always talking about leveling up on his computer game because he's, done, he's achieved a lot of things. No. They heard with eyes of faith and it was accredited to them. If that is how you got rolling, if that is how you came into the faith, you began with a supernatural work of the Spirit. Why, where and how would the rules change over to the way this is completed, the way this continues is that you get busy and the Spirit, the gift of God to you, is not a seal, not an ongoing thing, but more like a gift voucher that you scratched and used and threw to the side. Foolishness. Paul says, uh, did you suffer so many things in vain? This word suffer carries, in, in our, obviously in our English context, in our English meaning of what we might experience for our faith, some kind of hardship, some kind of persecution. Did you suffer hardship? Did you suffer persecution? But in its original meaning, it's a little bit more ambiguous. Uh, epitheta, the Greek word, did you suffer, can mean experience and often does. Have you had such a wonderful spiritual experience? Did you suffer such a moment with the Holy Spirit to no end, without meaning? Was that in vain? Or combining the two meanings, did you suffer the work of the Spirit in vain? Did you suffer the work of the Spirit who came along and said, that's sin, 
get rid of it. Like that's painful. Did you suffer that? Did you go through that in vain? That you would so easily go, that's too hard, I'm going back to ticking boxes and keeping rules. Did you suffer that? No, the Spirit was given to you for a reason, a purpose. That is why you were supplied with the gift. Tell me, was it by your works that, that you advanced or by works of the Spirit in your life? Was it your works that pointed out your sin? Was it your works that began to lead you to holiness or was it the work of the Spirit? That's what Paul's getting at. Well, I think that's what he's getting at. The Spirit performs. He moves on. The Spirit performs. Now it's moved to present tense, ongoing tense. The Spirit performs miracles amongst you, miraculous work in your life. These miraculous, these miracles that the Spirit's now performing, what are they? Of dying to sin and pursuing holiness. That's not natural to the human heart. That's supernatural provision. That's what is miraculous. The power of the gospel at work by sheer grace before your very eyes. Listen. We read the word miracle and we instantly think, ah, we think of healings and answered prayer and no doubt that was going on and it still does. But the miracles that they were seeing around them, the work of the Spirit that they were most seeing was people coming to faith in Christ. That is the greatest miracle of all. Of a life that now says no to sin and lives to God. How does that happen? Miraculous work of the Spirit. Was that in vain? Did you experience and see all that to no end? The Christian life and it's, is a life of faith, enabled and empowered by the Spirit. Was the manifesting of the Spirit and its ongoing power in your lives by means of formulas? Did this happen by you doing little formulas, by you producing rites or performing rites? Is that how it happened? Did you get a little incantation right? Did you say a little prayer right and the Spirit responded like a dutiful little good puppy dog? Or was it by hearing the Gospel and by faith the Spirit comes and just starts doing stuff in your life to transform you? You Galatians, you've experienced this. You Christians, you're like the Galatians. You pagans who don't come out of Jewish background. Was that, what, was that real or not? You tell me, Paul's saying. It is the remembering the gospel, God's love for us in Christ that the Spirit keeps pointing us to. The Holy Spirit is not uh, primarily in your life to pat you on the back and tell you how good you are, but rather how much you are loved in Christ and how much you continue to need Jesus that's what he's doing. Faith alone. Faith allows the Spirit to go to work in our lives. When we forget the gospel, practically speaking, we stifle the Spirit. And it fosters an environment in our heart that sets up other functional saviours, that sets up other ways of finding approval. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to portray to our hearts in, in graphically... Uh, in graphic vitality, 
you know, before our eyes, before our eyes, if you like, that we are accepted by God in Jesus and not in any measure we're going to take. Here is what forgetting the gospel looks like then in this context. Here is what not letting the Spirit looks like in us. We try harder to prove ourselves. We double down on our practices. We take control of how we're approved. We take control of how we're saved. We return to rules and performance as a means of demonstrating our goodness. I've got to tell you, or you tell me, is that not exhausting? It's an exhausting way to live. Paul says, actually, it's a foolish, foolish way to live. Rather, what the gospel says and what the Spirit seeks to remind us is to die to this kind of, uh, of save myself thinking and by holding before our eyes and before our heart the vivid depiction of Christ's saving work for us allows us to abandon self-trusting efforts that our salvation is not completed in our efforts but has been completed past tense by the work of Christ and now present ongoing tense is being sustained by the Spirit. You see Paul's logic in this passage? Listen, this is how this functions. When we place too much of our meaning in something, whether that's work, marriage, kids, and those relationships, those areas that we, we, we put so much uh, work into point out or expose in us sin or they don't affirm us in a way that makes us feel complete. We don't get that Jerry Maguire moment from it. You know, oh, you complete me, oh, you had me, whatever. Moment from them. If they have become functional saviours, if they have become the means through which we've taken our eyes off Christ, we will unravel. We will get angry at them. We'll just get angry at the world because they didn't do what we wanted. We, we lost control. But even that moment, or even the moments to come out of them, we hold before our hearts the reality that Christ loved me and died for me, even though, even though I'm a weak father in a moment even though I can be a cruel husband or wife or spouse in a moment, you know, whatever, terrible pastor of a church or dog owner, whatever it is that's bending you out of shape. In that moment, in that moment, when we're looking at our own strength, when we're looking at our own things, we need our hearts to be reminded that Christ loved us and died us when? when we were at our worst, Romans 5. And so knowing that, I reset everything. It does two things. It keeps us depending on Jesus. When when we hold before our hearts that, it keeps us depending on Jesus and it enables us to re-engage with these various relationships, these various environments of our lives, not as saviours, they're not there to save us, but as gifts to be enjoyed to be nurtured and cultivated out of our relationship with Jesus. It lets us heal what we break. It allows spouses to face each other and forgive because they're not defined by uh, each other, by what, what they've said about each other, but 
what God said about them individually and they take that toward each other. That's what Paul's driving at. That's what Paul wants us to get hold of, that our lives as Christians, in every theatre, in every whatever we engage in, are sustained by the work of the Spirit in our lives to remind us of the gospel that saved us and not to grab on to other things. Now we get down to the end of this and I know that Paul moves out of this argument of experience and he, and he puts forward, now he'll move and he'll put forward arguments from history. He'll say, hey, consider, consider Abraham, you know. And there's some really cool stuff in there if we push back into Abraham about how his faith, he was considered, he was um, credited, imputed as righteous before he did one thing, before he was circumcised, before any of that happened. God said he was saved. Why? Uh, if we read, you can go to Genesis 15 in there and it's the reaffirming that the word of God came to Abraham and he believed the gospel that God spoke to him. Paul calls it the gospel and it was a credit to him as righteousness. He had faith that saved him. He hadn't done a thing. In fact, in that conversation, he's asking God questions, going how, how, how. You know, there's some some. Uh, Doubt may be there, but he's accredited as righteousness and they look at Abraham and he goes to Abraham because Abraham had faith, not works. And even though some of these rights came through Abraham, it was faith in God. And Well, okay, well, that, so what do we get the law? And there's some great stuff to go into that, but I want to rest here, I want to rest here and ask the Spirit of God to paint in ever-creasing clarity through the Word of God the love and approval that God has for us in Jesus and how that is the way we move forward in our Christian life. Everything else is foolishness. To forget this, to forget that God has both supplied the means of our salvation and in the means of its ongoing um, participation is foolishness. I just wanted to rest in that thought, allow us to think over that. And I just thought of this this morning. Uh, I was chatting to Julian earlier and, and here's why uh, that's a great place to... Here's why to, to work on that and to think around that is good is because that is the work of transformation. We are allowing God to do the transforming work, not us. We want to take control and if we take control then there is no transforming work of God in our lives. We still regulate. We still, we still put laws over it. But if our inner hearts, we remind ourselves of the gospel and how that came and that the, it's now the work of the Spirit to guide and direct us. Read Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he just goes on and he he flips from what a life walking with the Spirit looks like to what a life walking in flesh looks like. And what Paul's inviting us into is a life walking with the Spirit. That is how you take um, imputed righteousness and turn it into righteousness that lives out in a practical way. Let's pray. Lord, um, hmm. 
practical application of this passage is that your spirit would take the truth here and clarify it into our hearts and that you know I wouldn't rest in my uh, capacity to do great job of making truth self-evident. So pray now that you would be working in our hearts to remind us that this is a life of grace we live and it's empowered and enabled by your spirit. I give you thanks for this uh, book of Galatians this morning and would you continue to, as we, we hear from it on a Sunday, as we gather around it during the week, would you continue to uh, just shape our lives in its truth? And Lord, there's just, if, if, if there are people who have no idea what we've been talking about this morning, no idea what it is to experience the release from slavery and law into freedom with the Holy Spirit, this, this is a message that says, there is, there is something so wonderful available to you that, you that you can rest in all your struggling, all your striving, all your self-loathing, all your self-promoting sort of and just rest from that and trust that God accepts you in Christ. No matter what you, no matter how low you dug a hole, what filthy action you crawled down into, or no matter how many times you helped a little old lady across the street, God loves you unconditionally, without any kind of um, bias in Christ, and that is yours to rest in, to know, and to have. Amen.